From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We could have missed billion-year civilizations. I mean, things that have come and gone and would be far longer and more technologically advanced than anything that we could possibly imagine. That's Garrett Graff. He's a journalist and historian who has written about Robert Mueller's FBI, America's nuclear war contingency plans, cyber warfare, Watergate, and September 11th. His latest book dives into another intense element of American history, our national obsession with the possibility of extraterrestrial life. The book is called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. We talk about what alien contact might look like, the viral nature of conspiracy theories, and the recent national resurgence in UFO interest. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from John Cipher, who asks, how will the story surrounding Fannie Willis impact the Georgia case? Can it go on without her and the special prosecutor? So John, you're obviously talking about a wave of controversy surrounding reports that have emerged out of the case in Georgia that suggest that Fannie Willis has had some kind of relationship, undisclosed, uh, of a romantic nature, with someone who she appointed to be a special prosecutor in the case, Nathan Wade. Those allegations come from one of the defendants in the Georgia election case, Michael Roman. He has made a motion, based on those allegations, that not only must Fonnie Willis and the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, be conflicted out of the case and be removed from the case, but also that the indictment against him should be dismissed. Since he's made those allegations and filed that motion, one of the other defendants, the most famous defendant, Donald Trump, has joined in the motion. Now, your question about how the stories around this may impact the Georgia case, well, as an initial matter, putting aside the legal question, it gives a lot of grist and ammunition to critics of the prosecution and to supporters of Donald Trump. I don't know all the details. Fannie Willis has not said much about it other than defending the qualifications and the ability and the expertise of Nathan Wade, who she says is quite qualified and necessary to the ongoing prosecution of the former president and his co-defendants. But one might argue that in a very, very high-stakes case, uh, almost certainly the most important and high-stakes case of a DA's career, 
you want to be above reproach and not give grist or ammunition to your critics. Another impact is that the allegations have spawned a special committee in the Georgia State Senate that is intending to investigate this alleged misconduct and these allegations about an improper relationship and about the use of state money in connection with vacations that allegedly Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade may have taken with each other. So all this will play out, certainly, in the press, in the Senate chamber, and in the courtroom. My prediction, although I'm often loath to make predictions, my prediction is that at some point Nathan Wade, the appointed special prosecutor, will step down. I think it's a distraction. I think it raises a lot of questions. And whether it's fair or not, I think he's probably going to go. On the other hand, I don't think Fannie Willis will go. I think she will insist on remaining and will be permitted to remain in charge of the prosecution that she oversaw in the investigative stage in the grand jury phase and now as it goes to trial. As to your final question, can the case go on without her and the special prosecutor? Even though I think Fannie Willis will not go anywhere, any case brought by a district attorney's office or a U.S. attorney's office does not require the lead person to be on the case, whether it's a U.S. attorney or a district attorney. If for some reason Fannie Willis is removed from overseeing the trial or is held to be conflicted in some way and or the special prosecutor meets the same fate, there are seasoned professionals in that office who can continue preparing for trial, conducting the trial, and handling any appeals. In any given prosecutor's office, from time to time, the lead person in the office, the DA or the U.S. attorney, may be conflicted off a case. Maybe they handled some part of it in private practice. Maybe the person is connected to them in some way, either as a, as a business associate or there's a friendship there. But it's not unusual for there to be recusals at the top of an office. That doesn't mean the case stops. That doesn't mean the other prosecutors in the office can't carry on. This question comes in an email from Valerie, who writes, There's been a lot of comment on whether any of the Trump criminal prosecutions will be tried prior to the election. What about the period between a Trump victory on Election Day and Inauguration Day? Is there any reason why a trial could not take place during this period? And if such a trial results in a guilty verdict, what impact would that have? Would he become president despite the verdict? Well, Valerie, thanks for your question. It's a good question. It's a good series of questions. I shudder at the hypotheticals that are embedded in your question, including the fact of a Trump victory. But there's nothing that I know of in the law or the Constitution that prevents Donald Trump from being tried at any point before the election or in that transition period between an election and inauguration day, whether Trump loses or wins the election. And on the one hand, by the way, it might be perceived as a pretty good time to have a trial because there's no election looming in the future. It can't have an impact on the election. It's a sort of, um, I guess, arguably quiet period during which a trial could take place. On the other hand, you might imagine how it will look to postpone a trial until that period and have one during the time when the next commander-in-chief, who was the former commander-in-chief, is trying to assemble a cabinet, is trying to assemble a White House staff, uh, is busy trying to prepare for his second stint at the presidency. And, and you might imagine that some judges wouldn't love that period of time, but as a legal and constitutional matter, there is no bar. As for your related question, if the trial results in a guilty verdict, what impact would it have? I'm not aware, again, of any legal or constitutional bar to Donald Trump, even having been convicted of a crime, from serving as president. Now, there's a more complicated question, which I don't really have an answer to, of what happens if he's convicted of a crime before he takes office again and is sentenced to prison. Depending on which case we're talking about, I think there are higher or lower chances of there being a prison sentence associated with a guilty verdict. And in some of the cases, I think a term of imprisonment is rather unlikely. But the question of what happens 
if a convicted defendant is simultaneously supposed to take the reins back at the White House and also report to a correctional facility, that's something that we've never encountered before, and I'm not sure how the country or the legal system would handle such a thing. This question comes in an email from Jason who asks, could you explain why the amount awarded to E. Jean Carroll in a defamation trial against Donald Trump was so high? Well, Jason, that's a great question. As you have no doubt heard by now, in E. Jean Carroll's second defamation trial against Donald Trump, the jury in fairly record time, about two hours and 40 minutes or two hours and 45 minutes, rendered a verdict awarding her total damages of $83.3 million. A portion of that compensatory and another portion of that punitive. And it's, I think, a legitimate question to ask, why such a large number? And I think you can attribute it to a couple of very powerful arguments made by E. Jean Carroll's lawyers at the trial. One is, and remember, Donald Trump has engaged in defamation after defamation after defamation of E. Jean Carroll, even after being found liable on a prior occasion. So the issue here is not just compensation, it's not just punishment, it's how do you get Donald Trump to stop and E. Jean Carroll's lawyers argued repeatedly in court, the jury has to determine, quote, what it will take to get Donald Trump to stop, end quote. And so that's a question that turns on the identity and the wherewithal financially of the defendant in the case, Donald Trump. And so in a related argument, again and again and again, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers push the point about how Donald Trump is no ordinary defendant with ordinary means. At one point, the lawyer said, quote, the law says you can consider Donald Trump's wealth as well as his malicious and spiteful continual conduct. It will take an unusually high punitive damages award to have any hope of stopping Donald Trump to have a chance of allowing Ms. Carroll's life to return to normal, end quote. And by the way, in service of that argument about how the amount of punitive damages has to be high enough to have a deterrent effect on Donald Trump, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers repeatedly pointed out how Donald Trump had bragged and boasted about his own pocketbook and bank accounts and use his boasts of his wealth against him. So it's an awfully large number. There's a possibility it gets reduced either by Judge Kaplan in the district court or by a court of appeals. I think it will remain, even if it's reduced, a very substantial and large number for the reasons that I described to you, because I think those arguments are compelling and meritorious. But you know, Donald Trump is unlike other defendants who usually learn the lesson after they first have defamed someone and are held accountable for it. So a combination, of, a combination of his persistence in maligning this plaintiff and his financial standing make this judgment not as outlandish as some people make it out to be. And by the way, the fact that Donald Trump has means is in some ways good news for E. Jean Carroll. And this case is to be distinguished in that respect from the other high-stakes defamation trial and verdict by two Georgia election workers against Rudy Giuliani. That verdict was in the amount of $148 million. Now, whatever you think about Rudy Giuliani, he does not have $148 million. Those two women, unfortunately, will probably not see anything but a fraction of the judgment. That's not true in E. Jean Carroll's case. At some point, when appeals are exhausted, and at the end of the day, E. Jean Carroll will see, I suspect, every penny of the judgment found in her favor. I'll be right back with my conversation with Garrett Graff. Support for this podcast 
comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. Garrett Graff knows a lot about UFOs, but are we getting the whole story? Garrett Graff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm very excited to have you to talk about something that has been an interest of mine and millions and millions of people for a very long time. But I want to start with something uh, in the nature of nomenclature, and you probably know what I'm going to ask you. Your book is entitled UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. So just as I felt with the demotion of Pluto from planet <laughs> to whatever they call it now, right? Because I used to have a great interest in astronomy, as some of my listeners know. We're not supposed to call them UFOs anymore, unidentified flying objects. We're supposed to call them UAPs. And even UAP, I'm not sure exactly what it stands for. Can you enlighten us? Yeah. So the funny thing is that these started off, uh, as I trace in the book, as flying saucers. That was how they first arrived in the national popular imagination in the spring and summer of 1947. There was a high giggle factor, uh, one might say, in talking about flying saucers. And so when the military stepped in to begin to study this and try to solve the mystery, they tried to popularize the term UFO 
unidentified flying object. Which and they was, succeeded. And they succeeded. And they meant to uh, both destigmatize the conversations around flying saucers and also encompass and recognize the fact that not everything that was spotted in the sky was saucer shaped. So then you fast forward a couple of decades and you end up with the modern era when the U.S. government really began to re-engage on this issue in the last 10 or 15 years. They changed the nomenclature again, in part to destigmatize the conversation around UFOs, which o- over the last 80 years has become just as much a giggle factor as the original flying saucer. And it was originally unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAP, which was meant to encompass the idea that not all of the things that people are reporting are going to be physical objects, that some of them are going to be be lights or things. Right. And then even more recently, they changed it again and now unidentified anomalous phenomenon is the official UAP abbreviation because the government now also wants to encompass that not all of these things are flying or aerial. And that, in fact, one of the things that the U.S. government is particularly interested in is what uh, you would call USOs, Unidentified Submerged Objects or Swimming Objects. I didn't know about the swimming objects. Who's doing this exactly? Is this is this Garrett, the deep state? So it, it's funny that you say that because the, <laughs> I mean, I was kind of joking. But as, yes. You're not quite as wrong as you think that you are um, with that joke, and and we can talk about this more later. But I actually believe very strongly that you don't get the modern era of conspiracies in political culture without the foundation of the UFO conspiracies of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And that to me, in fact, there's actually a very straight line from the UFO conspiracies of the 1980s to January 6th. And that, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons that, you know, we can discuss and uh, you probably have your own thoughts on, I, I am dubious of the idea that the government is involved in some large-scale cover-up of meaningful knowledge of alien craft or alien bodies. You know, one of the things that covering national security for 20 years has taught me is to doubt government conspiracies because they presuppose a level of competence, planning, and forethought. <laughs> Our government is not that not smart. On, it, right. That is not <laughs> on display in the rest of the work that the government does, but that there is actually, I think, a very dark undertone to the UFO story that helps plant the idea of the deep state for the first time in American political culture in the 1980s. We're going to get into all this because I think it's fascinating in the analog you just mentioned the origin story of a lot of deep-seated conspiracy thinking in the minds of, of a lot of Americans and, and how it flows from the subject. But before we get to that, and this is a theme of your book and your writing, why is it even in the first place the job of the government to decide or to promote particular terminology or nomenclature? That's not how it works when we're talking about other things in our solar system, our galaxy, etc. You know, isn't this usually the domain of 
scientists, some government, some otherwise? Why is this a government-directed thing? Yeah, and that was one of the things that I actually really tried to untangle with this book was tracing two threads that are normally considered parallel and treated very separately by journalists and historians. You know, you have the, like, wacky UFO history of flying saucers and little green men here on Earth. And then you have the serious scientists doing serious astronomy work in what's called the search for extraterrestrial intelligence across the rest of the universe. And that these are subjects that normally people write about separately, but there's actually a lot of overlap. And in fact, there's a lot of arguing back and forth between the two camps. It is in many ways the task of the military and the intelligence community to try to solve the mystery of what's in our own airspace. You know, that's a very basic, you know, Air Force and NORAD, uh, Northern Command specific task. But that for much of the last 80 years, the science community has been really reticent to engage in the hunt for UFOs, the trying to untangle the mystery uh, of UFOs and UAPs because they have been worried, not wrongly, about that giggle factor. They've been worried about being taken seriously as scientists when you're out there saying that you're studying UFOs. Yeah, but it's interesting. The giggle factor arises from what? Obviously, it is interesting and important to know and understand what's out there, whether submerged, as you just mentioned, or in the air, whether they are prototypes of, of weapons or other flying objects by our adversaries or even perhaps our allies. And then there's the separate question, which is the other you know theme of your book and maybe the more important theme of your book and this inquiry. Uh, because when you ask the question, are there UFOs, what you're really asking, as you say, is are we alone? And that causes people to giggle in a way that maybe they shouldn't. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And to me, one of the biggest revolutions I think we've had in human knowledge and understanding of the universe in the last quarter century is that the math is almost inescapably on the side of the aliens. Yes. I was really struck by the math. Can you do some of it for us? Can you, can you show your work, yeah. as they say? So as late as the 1990s, we did not understand that there was a single planet outside of our own solar system. Yeah. Now we understand that effectively every single star out across the universe is going to have planets, many of which will fall into what scientists call that Goldilocks zone. You know, things that are not too hot, not too cold, could support water, could support an atmosphere, you know, could support what we would recognize as life. And that across the universe, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of one sextillion habitable planets. That's a billion trillion habitable planets. So you could believe that's that, a lot. <laughs> exactly. Like that's a really, really big number. You, you know, you could believe that the odds of life are low, the odds of intelligent life might be even lower. But, you know, it's hard to look out across the universe and think that we are a one in sextillion chance, especially when you begin to realize how quickly on Earth life began to appear. 
Yeah. And this is one of the things that really begins to boggle my mind as I went through the thought experiments of this. You know, the, the James Webb Space Telescope is transforming our understanding of the universe, you know, on a like almost daily basis right now. And one of the things it has uncovered is it has photographed stars and solar systems far away that began to form as little as 300 million years after the creation of the universe, after the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, remind folks, the Big Bang is about 14 billion years ago? Yeah, sort of circa 14 billion. And that we are an incredibly young civilization on a pretty young planet in a pretty mediocre average solar system in a really, really old universe. And so, you know, our solar system's about four, four and a half billion years old. So you begin to see these James Webb discovered galaxies and realize we could have missed billion year civilizations. I mean, things that have come and gone and would be far longer and more technologically advanced than anything that we could possibly imagine. And you could have had multi-billion year civilizations rise and fall across the universe before our solar system ever began to gather out of dust. There are two mathematical issues here, right? As you just pointed out, but I just want to parse them. One is, given the multiplicity of stars that have habitable planets, it seems unfathomable, I agree, although I'm not a scientist, that somewhere out there, perhaps in millions and millions of places, right, far-flung places in our galaxy and in other galaxies, there emerged life that evolved into intelligent life if the Darwinian laws apply elsewhere, and I imagine that you would say that they do. The problem is, the three things have to be true for UFOs to be signs of extraterrestrial life, right? One, the existence of that emergence of life elsewhere Two, the timing of that being simultaneous with our existence, which is pretty recent. And three, that they had any interest in or would bother to show up here. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, and that last one actually to me was one of the most fun things to untangle and, and think about and write about in this book, which is we, we probably wildly misimagine what that first contact scenario would be. You know, Hollywood has given us three different scenarios of how the aliens will would make themselves known to people on Earth. And they're all wonderfully human-centric. They all presuppose, as you're laying out there, that anyone would bother crossing interstellar space to visit us, which is intentionally on the surface intentionally it, it, right it, it, uh, intentionally which is a pretty far-fetched idea once you begin to get into it so you, you have these three scenarios you have the independence day flying saucer over the white house you know take me to your leader I, we're here to make friends or we're here to harvest you know your organs for food and energy or you yes right right uh, you have the second scenario, which is the Jodie Foster contact radio message from outer space. And you have the third, which is the E.T. stranded lone travelers type scenario. And when you get into this and begin to talk to the scientists who work on this, 
The problem with all three of those scenarios is that they are clear and unambiguous. And that the most likely scenario for what our first contact would be is going to be something far more confounding and ambiguous and mysterious. Because what we are most likely to actually encounter first is some piece of space trash from another civilization. Um, you know, the equivalent of a broken spaceship or, or piece of wreckage or defunct space probe, not unlike another civilization uncovering our own Voyager or Pioneer space probes as they cross interstellar space as well. And that uh, Harvard astronomy chair Avi Loeb talks about this as really the equivalent of like a uh, empty plastic bag blowing through our cosmic backyard, that we're going to have this like telescopic image someday that and look up and say, you know, well, that's not from our Walmart. Like, whose Walmart do you think that bag came from? And we're going to be left with this question of, is this civilization nearby? Is this friend or foe? Does this civilization still exist? And that we will probably first recognize some sign of intelligent life without being clear at all what it actually means. It's interesting to me that these scenarios that you describe, and I wonder what you think about this, are all incredibly self-regarding that they, in almost every scenario, right, they presuppose not only that there's intelligent life, not only that they would come here intentionally, not only that they would want to intermingle with us during the period of time that we're here, but that we matter so much to them. On the idea of invasion, isn't that also self-regarding? In other words, what does it say about human psyche that the, the doomsday scenario of attack from without is the most dominant of the three? Yeah. The, uh, Carl Sagan, probably the most famous astronomer of the 20th century, he was simultaneously the biggest proponent of that search for extraterrestrial intelligence out across the universe, SETI, and also the primary arch skeptic that UFOs here represented signs of extraterrestrial life. But his argument was never that aliens didn't visit Earth. It's that no one would care or have noticed the existence of humans on Earth and that statistically you would expect aliens and intelligent civilizations to cycle through Earth visiting every 100,000 or 200,000 years, basically treating Earth as you know, we would treat a rest area on the Jersey Turnpike, a you know, a stopover randomly chosen on the way from one interesting place to another. And that his argument was not that aliens wouldn't visit Earth. It's that the thing that you saw out your window last Tuesday night is statistically unlikely to be the one time in the last 100,000 or 200,000 years right. that an alien <laughs> spacecraft came by. Isn't it also possible, um, as we do the math, you can kind of do the math in an intelligent fashion, as you did earlier, and say, well, there are this many stars in the universe. This percentage of them are likely to have habitable uh, planets in the Goldilocks zone. And then you come up with this large number, one sextillion, right? Isn't it possible that none of these civilizations, if they exist, because physics won't allow it, 
none of them will ever be capable of or never have been capable of interstellar travel because they can't travel at some fraction of or at the speed of light. And that this idea of intersecting civilizations just is as, is as a matter of physics and math an impossibility. Yeah, the bigger impossibility, and I'll come back to the question of interstellar travel in a, in a second, but when scientists began to study this and think about it in the 50s and 60s, one of the pioneers in the field, Frank Drake, put together something that was called the Drake Equation, which has come to be probably the most famous equation of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it lays out the variables of how you would know how many civilizations out there were capable of interstellar travel. And, you know, it's how many planets are there, how many planets are, what percentage of those are habitable, on what percentage of habitable planets does life evolve, on what percentage of places where life evolved does intelligent life evolve, you know, so on and so forth. The biggest factor in that equation, though, turns out to be what the scientists and astronomers call L, which is the length of time an intelligent civilization lasts. And if that number is in the like tens of thousands, um, you know, that a, an intelligent civilization is only going to last, you know, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 years. We are functionally alone in the universe, even if intelligent life is common, that basically there wouldn't be enough civilizations around at any one time to ever notice the existence of the other ones. If that number L is a million years or a hundred million years or a billion years, our universe might teem with life. And so to me, part of this question ends up being this really profound and almost spiritual one arguing for why humanity really needs to take care of itself, which is if you look around, you know, here we are in 2024, there are a lot of reasons to expect that humanity doesn't thrive for another thousand or 10,000 years. Or, and, or eight <laughs> yeah, you know, or, or, you know, another decade or, you know, another century even. Um, and yet, if we do, if we're able to last, like, think of all of the things we will discover about the world around us, about the universe around us. You know, think of the potential for the discovery of what humanity could still accomplish if we give ourselves the chance to last that. So then, I mean, look, look, you, you say, just I want to point out what something you say that is obvious and, and known to everyone, but just when you put it this way, it was very stark and striking that, you know, almost everything we know about modern physics, we've learned in the last hundred years, which is the span of one lifetime. Yes. So the almost exactly a year ago, the world's oldest woman died. She was a French nun. She was 118 years old. Everything that we have learned about relativity and quantum physics, we learned in her lifetime. So imagine what we could learn about physics in the next 100 or 200 years or next 1,000 years. And to me, that's actually where probably a big chunk of the mystery of UFOs and UAPs actually lies in undiscovered and heretofore to us mysterious physics. 
where you could have really bizarre stuff that helps explain UFOs and UAPs that still isn't aliens, but is just as transformative and world-changing in terms of dis the discovery of parallel universes, multidimensional travel, time travel from the past or future. I mean, things that would really blow our minds and that we just don't understand yet how they're possible. It sounds like you're sort of answering my question about the limitations of physics and space travel as a, as a physical matter and as a mathematical matter with the response that, well, you know, perhaps anything is possible if a civilization can continue to grow and learn uh, in accelerating fashion over the course of long periods of time. But I just, I want to rephrase what I, what I asked. Yeah. Some things are just not possible, right? We right. can, you know, it, it may be the case that time travel is, it may be the case that time travel just isn't possible no matter how advanced or how smart uh, your civilization is and how long it lasts. And so I go back to that original question. If you know, if scientists have, have talked about this, that, that maybe that kind of thing, I'm not talking about interplanetary travel, but interest, and maybe it's true that if you evolve, uh, I guess one scenario that um, you know, as a layperson off the top of my head is, you know, the problem with the math question and the physics question is time. Yes. And let's say you build a spacecraft that takes just a, just a long time to get from, from one place to another you know, hundreds, thousands of light years away, in our understanding of how life works, no, nobody lives that long. So I guess one solution is not being able to travel faster necessarily, but be able to live longer. And maybe that's a solution. But, but otherwise, I'm, I'm still curious to know if there's anyone who's saying, well, interstellar travel at these distances is just never going to be possible because wormholes are a thing of science fiction alone. Yeah. The flip side of that is... We don't have any technology right now that would detect something moving at a fraction of the speed right. of light through our own solar system. Right. That it might be that other people, you know, not other people, other civilizations have mastered some fraction of the speed of light travel, um, which, you know, seems maybe possible. Uh, you know, maybe not at the speed of light, but a fraction of the speed of light even. And that it could be passing through our solar system all the time. And we wouldn't have any idea that we would see those objects as no more than a blurry pixel on the, uh, you know, on a telescopic image that we would probably, you know, think was a, an error or a piece of dust or something. And, you know, it's possible that interstellar travel is easier than we think it is, uh, or that other civilizations live lives that could encompass travel of, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of years. Um, you know, that's the other equation is that we might just misunderstand what a lifetime is. Um, you know, if you are, uh, a civilization that has figured out how to live for 10,000 years, suddenly space is a lot more accessible than if you, you know, are sort of pushing 118 years. You know, the other example is when you think about it, it's only been true that this civilization has figured out a way to fly 121 years ago, right? Four billion years, the planet has existed. As far as we know, only one species has learned how to fly 
without wings, you know, without the natural ability to fly recently. So what's possible in the future? I guess that's right. I'll be right back with Garrett Graff after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I want to come back to the issue of how our government treats these phenomena and the degree to which there seems to be a lack of transparency, some would say cover-up, has spawned, as you started to say at the beginning, these cycles of conspiracy theories that maybe have spawned other conspiracy theories or that kind of thinking. You quote a famous astronomer, J. Allen Hynek, as saying the following back in 1977, quote, there are two kinds of cover-ups. You can cover up knowledge and you can cover up ignorance. I think there was much more of the latter than of the former, end quote. And you developed that theme and thesis yourself. Explain that to, to folks. J. Allen Hynek was the primary government astronomer on the military's UFO hunt for about a quarter century. Um, he, for the latter half of the 20th century, was probably the most famous astronomer focused on questions of UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrial life and actually wrote the definitive book on the subject in the early 1970s as he was leaving the government and comes up with the nomenclature uh, of close encounters of the first kind, second kind, third kind. And the Steven Spielberg movie famously is, is based on his, his book and, and his work. And he, he started off in the 1940s very dubious of the idea that UFOs represented alien visitors. And then over the course of his work came to be, if not a full-on believer, then at least, uh, you know, highly sympathetic to the idea that there was something really fascinating and mysterious at the core of the UFO mystery. And that was in part because he saw enough evidence and talked to enough witnesses that he was convinced that there was something to the phenomenon and that he was convinced that the government didn't really know what it was, um, that the military and the you know forerunners of, of NASA on the civilian space side 
really couldn't explain the totality of the flying saucer and UFO sightings that the public was coming forward with. And that at the same time, he didn't see, and I would argue we haven't seen still, the evidence that the U.S. government is covering up meaningful knowledge about alien spacecraft or alien bodies or non-human intelligences, as uh, people in the field call it. And that, in fact, all of the evidence that we have from declassified memos and documents and conversations and classified briefings and, and all over the decades is that the government is really just as puzzled about UFOs as the rest of us. Right. Which is not to say that the government doesn't cover up its full understanding of UFOs. Right. Um, it just doesn't have are, as great an understanding as we may presume. Right. Because there are two obvious cloaks of secrecy that fall across a lot of the UFO sightings. One is, you know, some chunk of this is our government's own secret projects being tested in the skies around us. Um, you know, big chunk of the UFO sightings of the 1950s turned out to be the U-2 spy plane. And in the years since, you know, that's been the development of the SR-71, the A-12 ox cart, the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter, you know, drones, etc. There's also a, a layer of secrecy that the government has around what it knows to be advanced adversary technology being tested against us. You know, this is secret Soviet craft during the Cold War. More recently, you know, secret Chinese drones, Russian drones, uh, Iranian drones. Uh, and we know that some chunk of this is what we consider UFOs because one of the things that the Pentagon has said in the last couple of years as it has begun to take UAPs more seriously is that through sightings of UFOs and UAPs, it uncovered a heretofore unknown transmedium Chinese drone, which is to say a Chinese drone that came out of the water and transitioned to flight, which was a technology that we did not understand that China had until the military began to dive into these modern UAP sightings. So give us a sense both in the 40s, 50s, and in very recent times, of how many such sightings there are, what percentage of them generally get resolved with some kind of plausible, non-alien, non-extraterrestrial uh, explanation, and how many do not, and what that should cause us to believe. Yeah. To me, the, uh, as you say, the, what the public considers UFO sightings is generally not that interesting to me, that so many of the public sightings are things that turn out to be relatively easily explained. The planet Venus uh, historically accounts for a huge number <laughs> of UFO sightings. Yeah. More recently, a, a big chunk of UFO sightings in the modern era turn out to be Starlink satellite launches um, that appear, you know, in weird, bright, straight lines up in the sky. So what's interesting are the the sightings that the U.S. government itself can't solve. And historically, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, that number was around 20% of reported UFO sightings. 
Now we have much better data, much better uh, analysis, much better technology. And that number in the modern era, according to the Pentagon, hovers between about 2% and 5% of sightings that when the government really bears down into it, it's not able to explain. Why isn't the government more transparent in the areas outside of our own national security and other countries' capabilities? Is it just habit? Is it really about worrying that they don't know a lot? I don't understand why they persist in this secrecy. Yeah, I think it's three things. One is the government's, as you know, uh, not always that good about knowing what it knows. And that, you know, one of the weird threads of the UFO story across decades is, you know, parts of the government reporting a UFO sighting that turn out to be a secret project run by another part of the government that the people involved didn't know about. Um, you know, the the crash in Roswell that is, you know, the, the founding myth in many ways of so many uh, UFO conspiracies turns out, uh, as we now understand it, to have been a secret balloon project that the military was developing to try to detect Soviet atomic tests. And yet it was the Air Force that reported the crash in Roswell because they looked at the wreckage and were like, we've never seen anything like this. <laughs> One and, hand not knowing what the other hand is doing. Right. The second thing is, you know, the government is really squirrely about what its sensors pick up and don't pick up. And so a lot of this is, I think, the government not really wanting to give adversaries any advantage about what the U.S. can detect or understand, uh, you know, anywhere across the planet. We saw this, by the way, in the crash of the Titanic submersible last summer, which is, you know, the, there was this big public hunt for it. And then about a week later, after the wreckage was found, the Navy sort of said, Oh, yeah, we actually uh, detected that with our anti-submarine audio surveillance system, and we heard it uh, explode and crush in real time the moment it happened and, like, knew that they were all dead instantaneously. And, you know, it took a couple of weeks for the government to come out and admit that. Um, and then the third category, again, which I think you would understand with your government background, is... It's really hard for bureaucracies to say, I don't know. And I think that the government really doesn't know what some chunk of these UFO and UAP sightings is. And that's a really hard thing for a country where, you know, we spend $60 billion a year on intelligence, a trillion dollars a year on national defense and homeland security for that bureaucracy to come out and say, man, there's some weird stuff out there that we don't have any idea what it is or how it operates or how it moves. Right. But call it um, UAP. You know, it, right. Like that, <laughs> that's not a real satisfying answer for the public and the taxpayers and the elected leaders to hear. You know, you made a reference to the, the idea and speculation that not only does our government and perhaps other governments have in their possession one of these craft also potentially alien bodies. Uh, given everything you've, you've studied and researched and that you know about this area and about life generally, 
and also probability, which is the longer odds that there is uh, intelligent life or has been intelligent life on one of these uh, sextillion habitable planets, or that there's a massive impenetrable conspiracy theory that is keeping alien dead bodies from the public. To me, I just, I can't wrap my head around the government <laughs> being able to pull off a conspiracy of the size and scope and scale that the people who argue that the government is covering up alien bodies and alien craft believe it to be. So the there was last summer this whistleblower from the intelligence community who comes forward uh, testifies before Congress that the government has a UFO crash retrieval program that has recovered you know, what he calls non-human biologics. And that, according to him, this conspiracy traces back 90 years. He's also said in interviews that there are 5,000 people who work on this program. And to me, those two things are in direct conflict in the ability for it to be successful. Um, you know, I, I would believe a very small program might be able to keep a secret like this for some period of time, but it couldn't last for 90 years. And 5,000 people couldn't keep that secret. If only because think of how much paper 5,000 people in government generate. Um, you know, the CIA torture program was arguably, you know, the one of the biggest secret programs that the U.S. government ran in that time frame. It lasted, you know, let's say three years, and it was uh, known within government by, you know, uh, let's say on the order of 500 people. Um, you know, might have been 300, might have been 800, but, you know, it wasn't 1,000 and it wasn't 10,000. That generated 2.2 million pages of documents that took the Senate, you know, the better part of like a decade to sort through. I just don't believe on the paperwork basis alone that the government could keep a 5,000-person conspiracy secret without, you know, someone accidentally sending a PowerPoint briefing to their roommate or leaving a briefcase behind, you know, when they're switching in a, in a cab or an airplane, even before you get to the idea that this would be the biggest secret of all time. You know, this would be the most important secret that you could imagine the U.S. government keeping short of you know, the U.S. government is in direct contact with God. Um, and well, isn't it? Uh, I mean, maybe it is. Um, you know, you'd know better than me. You've had, you've had a clearance. Um, and that the idea that that population would not at some point break and spill this secret just feels really literally unbelievable to me. Right. So what's the story of, of Area 51? Yeah, so Area 51 is in many ways the heart of this story of the UFO conspiracies. And you know, my my most recent book before this UFO one was A History of Watergate. And in a very weird way, the story of UFOs in American life ends up being a sequel to a book about Watergate. 
because the second half of this book is really about the rise of UFO conspiracies in the wake of Watergate, Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, and the collapse of faith and trust and truth in government institutions. And you see this really appear in the 1950s and grow up around the idea of the Roswell crash, where in theory, the government recovered alien craft and alien bodies, all of which end up being stored, according to these conspiracies, at Area 51, you know, in the uh, Las Vegas, in the Nevada desert north of Las Vegas, where the government has this massive flight test zone that's secret and closed to the public. And one of the guys who really becomes the leading voices of these conspiracies in the 1980s is this guy, Bill Cooper, who ends up uh, claiming to be a former naval intelligence officer who says that he's seen the reports about the secret government cover-up of aliens and alien spacecraft. Bill Cooper uh, becomes one of the founding voices of the far-right conservative talk radio in the 1990s. He has one of the most popular conservative talk radio shows in the country. And one of his biggest fans in the 1990s is a guy named Timothy McVeigh. And Tim McVeigh and his friend Terry Nichols go out to visit Bill Cooper in his Arizona compound uh, in the spring of 1994 and say to him, watch Oklahoma city. And then, you know, this becomes of course the, the duo that, that bombs the, the Alfred P. Murrah federal building in Oklahoma city and inspired in no small part by the radical extremism of Bill Cooper who also in the 1990s inspires a second figure and becomes the inspiration to a young Austin, Texas public access host named Alex Jones, who models his approach and view of the world, conspiratorial view of the world, on Bill Cooper. And the two of them have a vicious falling out on 9-11, when Alex Jones veers into what we now call 9-11 trutherism, which uh, Alex, uh, which Bill Cooper sort of very vociferously rejects uh, the idea of that 9-11 conspiracy. But at that time, Bill Cooper is locked into a battle with a local Arizona prosecutor named Janet Napolitano. And that... He ends up dying in a shootout with police in December 2001, just a couple of months after 9-11, when the sheriff's deputies come to arrest him. He opens fire on the deputies, shoots one of them. They return fire and kill him. But that by that point, he has really helped launch the career of Alex Jones. And so, you know, to me, there is this real idea of the deep state as this shadowy cabal of permanent government operatives operating at cross purposes with elected officials and the American public 
that begins in UFOs in the 1980s with Roswell, with Area 51, that leads, I think, in pretty direct ways straight through January 6th. So that's super fascinating and seems plausible to me. But having connected those dots, what is the lesson there for non-conspiracists, the rest of the population, politicians, scientists, government officials, bureaucrats, you know, for, for that whole population or multiple populations of people, what do they do about it? Because it, it is harmful and a problem uh, and a violence problem as evidence on January 6th. What, what do we do about it? I, I think, I mean, in some ways, the answer is this is going to be a real hard Humpty Dumpty to put back together again. Um, you know, as you know, and as we've been living through for the last couple of years, to me, the, the flip side of that is what we are seeing right now in the world of UFOs, which is the last couple of years have seen this tremendous shift in serious people talking seriously about this subject. That's a big part of why I wanted to write this book was to lay out some of the background as the national conversation shifts around this subject. And you are seeing real bipartisan engagement on Capitol Hill for transparency around UFOs and UAPs. That This is actually in some ways one of the seemingly last bipartisan issues on Capitol Hill. And you see people like the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, year after year pushing for better transparency, uh, better understanding of what the Pentagon, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the intelligence community, and NASA all understand about the reality of UAPs and UFOs. And so, you know, in some ways, to me, the, you know, the answer to a lot of conspiracies ends up being better transparency and more accountability for government officials. And I think that that's exactly what we're actually seeing in this space, that leaders like Mark Warner and Marco Rubio are actually making a difference in the public's knowledge around this subject. Do you think, therefore, the giggle factor has, in fact, been reduced? I think it has, um, you know, and that's what drew me to this subject in the first place, which is I am not a lifelong Trekkie or, uh, you know, someone raised in, you know, sci-fi novels or, or ufology. I, I come at this as someone who has covered national security for 20 years. And that to me, I got interested because I began to hear serious people talk seriously about this subject. There was this blockbuster reporting by the New York Times and Politico in 2017 around the existence of a then-unknown Pentagon UFO study program. There were reports at that time also of encounters by Navy pilots, Navy aviators around things that they could not explain, craft that they that moved in ways that they did not understand. And there was a very specific interview that I talk about in the book that got me to pay attention to this, which was John Brennan gave an interview in December 2020 to a DC journalist named Tyler Cowen, where John Brennan said, you know, there's stuff out there that we don't know what it is. It puzzles us. And some might say this phenomenon could constitute what some might say would be a new form of life. It was like really weird and tortured syntax. But 
John Brennan's a really serious guy. He had been at that point just wrapped up the better part of a decade as the CIA director and White House Homeland Security advisor. And I figured, you know, if John Brennan is leaving office and he's puzzled about this and he thinks that there's something interesting here, there probably is. Like, there can't be that many mysteries in John Brennan's life. Like, when he wakes up in the morning with a random question, we have an entire (laughs) national intelligence community that goes out and tries to answer it. Yeah, we had some time with him recently to talk about Yemen and the Houthis. So... He's a person who who knows who knows a lot of things. I, I agree with that. There's another subject that occupies the imaginations of people and has been a storyline in many movies. Talk to us about our government's plans for continuity of government and tell us what Raven Rock is. So this is uh, one of my previous books that, again, in a weird way, is a sequel or, or parallel story to uh, this, the one that I tell in, in UFOs, which is... Can the, I, before you do that, can I, can I mention the title? Yes. It's a great title. <laughs> Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. So this was a book that tried to dive into and explore the reality of the all of the weird stuff that would happen during and after a nuclear attack. Um, you know, programs that the U.S. government calls continuity of government. And, you know, what the public really shorthands as the doomsday plans. Um, and this was a series of plans that grew up during the Cold War that focused on, you know, how the government would function, who would lead it, questions of presidential succession, uh, you know, who would be able to launch the nuclear weapons in the event of a catastrophic attack on Washington and all of the weird apparatus that we built up around this uh, in terms of bunkers and airborne command posts. The, The title of the book, Raven Rock, is the name of the bunker along the Pennsylvania Maryland line that would be the backup Pentagon. There's another bunker at Mount Weather, Virginia, that's a FEMA facility. That would be the home to the executive branch, which would be, you know, presumably where the president and the cabinet would go in the event of an evacuation of Washington. And then, you know, there's a whole fleet of airplanes um, known as uh, NECAP, the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, that were these 747s specially configured to take to the skies in the minutes before a nuclear attack and where the president could run the U.S. government from these airborne command posts for 72 hours before the planes would have to land. And that these plans are, you know, weirdly and wonderfully developed down to, you know, the IRS plans of how to (laughs) levy taxes taxes. on nuclear damaged uh, property, you know, the Department of Agriculture's plans of how the American public would be fed. Um, You know, the, the National Park Service would be the ones in charge of running the refugee camps, which would be set up in national parks across the country because the presumption was national parks would not be a primary target of a, a nuclear attack. Are these serious? Are these serious plans? Do you take them seriously or I take it from your tone that you don't necessarily do so? Yeah, um, you know, I think there's there's an old Eisenhower quote about 
plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Yeah. And uh, that's what I think a lot of this nuclear uh, thinking and, and these continuity of government plans end up being, which is how almost none of the plans would actually work in the way that they were intended to in that moment. But that the government, you know, needed to and still does need real plans about how to respond to catastrophes right. because, you know, even a full out nuclear attack on the United States would leave about 60 to 70 million Americans alive across the country. You know, that's actually still a pretty big country that would need governing and who the president is in that situation, who the leadership of the uh, of Congress, how the three branches of government would operate, you know, are all a big part of these plans. And, and still something, by the way, that we sort of wrestle with um, and, and that pop up in like weird ways. I mean, the the whole thing that we lived through last fall where the House uh, lost its uh, speaker in Kevin McCarthy, and then Patrick uh, McHenry ends up as the uh, speaker pro tem. That was actually a continuity of government plan uh, in, in action, which is that there's a whole list of who becomes speaker when the speaker is in, incapacitated, killed, or removed, such that the House of Representatives will always have a speaker, no matter how many people die. Right. You mentioned Eisenhower and, and plans and planning. I don't know if it was Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali who said, I think something like, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Absolutely. And that's that's really what the what these plans uh, end up being, I think. And one of the things that I had a lot of fun with in, the, in this book is, you know, realizing the like weird ways that, you know, bureaucracies intersect with plans and operations. So, you know, the Federal Reserve created a massive bunker in, outside Richmond, Virginia, where it was going to keep all of the currency that the U.S. would need for 18 months after a nuclear attack, uh, which would be how long it would take the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to get back to printing paper currency. <laughs> But what they filled it with in the 1970s were $2 bills because when they introduced or reintroduced the $2 bill in the 1970s, it turned out no one in America wanted a $2 bill. So rather than pulp them, the Federal Reserve was like, well, we'll just put them aside for nuclear war because after a nuclear attack, people will probably be a lot less choosy about what currency they're using. Yeah, I think they're still not going to like the $2 bill. Right. They're, yes. they're collectors. We have, you know, my my father-in-law, my late father-in-law would give $2 bills to his grandchildren as gifts. And trust me, they were never used to buy any confections. They're just kept. <laughs> this continuity of government plan, you, you keep talking about the nuclear war scenario. Are these adaptable to the asteroid scenario? Yes. And they are actually very expressly designed for any sort of widespread catastrophe. Um, you know, they were one of actually the the main drivers of the planning in the 1990s was the possibility of a chemical or biological attack on Washington. Um, you know, what happens if right. there's a runaway pandemic? Um, you know, that's that's where you see a lot of these plans actually being put into use. And, and we, again, sort of lived through some of this when, um, you know, Donald Trump goes into the, the hospital for 
COVID. Um, and, and by the way, you know, a big part of the reason why people got so upset about Lloyd Austin's hospitalization right, uh, right. in this last month was the fact that the Secretary of Defense has all of these unique responsibilities in the event of a nuclear attack that make him, you know, uniquely important in that constitutional line of succession and, you know, what's called the the National Command Authority, you know, which is the system for launching nuclear weapons. And so, you know, you for for those reasons, you don't want to not know where your Secretary of Defense is. Last question on the subject, because I find this more interesting than I realized I would. In the movies, when you have these bunkers and you have the calamity, the approaching nuclear war or the approaching asteroid, there is a provision for um, artists and certain kinds of scientists and botanists and and others to preserve culture, not just continuity of government. Is any of that contained in these plans? So two different semi-conflicting answers to that. Uh, one is... Not only are ordinary non-government elected officials not included in this, but their spouses weren't even. Um, and, and to me, one of the biggest problems that I always had in, in studying these plans was the idea that you would have, you know, these cabinet officials or or government managers and, and department and agency leaders who in that moment would just get up and walk away from their families and leave their families to die in the coming catastrophe um, while they went off to some secure bunker to keep the country running. Um, and, and Congress actually ran into this with its bunker. It built a secret bunker at the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And the people behind the bunker behind the bunker doors were going to be the members of Congress and each of them could bring an aide. And then they realized that that was sort of probably a bad look for the families that would be left behind. Yeah. So then they, you know, don't, don't worry, honey, I'm just taking my secretary here behind the bunker door, um, you know, in, in 1950s style uh, government. And so they built a facility just outside the bunker door where the families could go. But one of the things, and this is this is actually, to me, one of the most profound aspects of the continuity of government planning, was that's not to say that the government didn't think really hard about culture and continuity. That actually, they developed very elaborate plans during the Cold War to evacuate the nation's totems, the uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Um, there was even a specially trained team of park rangers in Philadelphia whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell in the event of a surprise Soviet attack. And that, to me, it, it actually points to this really profound understanding and revelation, which is, you know, if you are going to preserve America in a nuclear attack or in a catastrophe, you know, what's America? And the answer is, it's an idea, you know, that it, it's bigger than any one president. It's bigger than any one cabinet secretary. It's bigger than any member of Congress. And 
that what you're actually looking to preserve is this idea of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that doing that wasn't about just having sort of a president or a speaker of the house or a secretary of agriculture. It was about preserving those things that we have passed down generation to generation, uh, like the Constitution, that tell us what our country is supposed to be. You've been really generous with your time. Garrett Graff, people should read all of his books. We mentioned several of them, but the most recent is UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Garrett, thanks so much. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks, Preet. My conversation with Garrett Graff continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we discuss the relevance of Watergate to the never-ending cascade of Trump scandals. The defining difference was that the Republicans in Congress during Watergate understood that their most important responsibility was to their constitutional role as legislators. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by returning to the E. Jean Carroll verdict. As you know, E. Jean Carroll is a writer who sued Donald Trump for making defamatory statements about her after she accused him of sexual assault. After a trial last year, the jury found the former president liable for sexual abuse and defamation. This year, there was a new trial, solely on the amount of damages E. Jean should be awarded. After less than three hours of deliberations, the jury came back with a verdict in the total amount of $83.3 million. Broken down, that's $18.3 million in compensatory damages, which includes both emotional and reputational harm, and $65 million in punitive damages. This was, of course, a tremendous victory and vindication for E. Jean Carroll, the plaintiff and victim in this case. But it was also a victory for sexual assault victims across the country and around the world. E. Jean Carroll's courage and persistence at 80 years of age is an inspiration to victims everywhere. According to the World Health Organization, one in three women will experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. And according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, out of every 1,000 instances of rape, only 13 cases get referred to a prosecutor, and only seven cases will lead to a felony conviction. Setting aside the legal hurdles in bringing a case like this and hoping to get justice, even with the odds stacked mightily against you, Imagine that the person you've accused is the most powerful man in the country. What this jury did by awarding E. Jean $83.3 million sends a resounding message that Donald Trump and others like him can't get away with it. E. Jean spoke with Rachel Maddow this week about what she felt as she looked at Trump from the witness stand. Amazingly, I looked out and he was nothing. He was nothing. He was a phantom. It was the people around him who were giving him power. He himself was nothing. It was an astonishing um, uh, uh, discovery for me. He's nothing. We don't need to be afraid of him. He can be knocked down. 
he can be knocked down. Indeed. And hopefully, Trump will continue to be held accountable as the rest of the cases against him move forward. When asked what she plans to do with the money, Eugene and her team of lawyers are working on a few ideas. But above all, she wants to help, quote, restore women their rights, end quote. I'll leave you all with what Eugene had to say when asked about how she felt after the verdict. I feel that this bodes well for the future. I think we've planted our flag. I think we've made a statement that that things are going to be different, that there's going to be a new way of doing things in this country. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Garrett Graff. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE, Irmavox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer was Tamara Sepper. The technical director was David Tadashore. The deputy editor is Celine Rohr. The editorial producer is Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.